Welcome to PD Heart, Pediatric Cardiology Today. My name is Dr. Robert Pass, and I'm the host of this podcast. I am Professor of Pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Thank you very much for joining me for our 195th episode of the podcast. I hope everybody enjoyed last week's episode on the concept of T1 mapping, looking for fibrotic changes seen associated with a particular single nucleotide polymorphism. We spoke with Professor Lars Grosse-Vortman of OHSU, and for those of you with an interest in cardiac MRI or cardiogenetics, I'd recommend you take a listen to last week's episode 194. As I say every week, if you'd like to get in touch with me, it's easy to remember my email. It's pdheart at gmail.com. This week, we move on to the world of general pediatric cardiology with a very practical work. The title of the work we'll be reviewing is a survey of pediatric cardiologists regarding non-emergent echocardiographic findings in asymptomatic newborns. The first author of this work is John S. Hokinson, and the senior author is Zhao Zhang. And this work comes to us from the Division of Pediatric Cardiology in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health in Madison, Wisconsin. When we're done reviewing this paper, Dr. John Hokinson, the first author of this work, has kindly agreed to speak with us about it. Therefore, let's move straight on to our discussion of the article and then a conversation with Dr. Hokinson. This week, we delve into a very interesting and practical paper looking at something that most pediatric cardiologists are faced with all the time, which is what to recommend when we see an infant in the newborn nursery who's basically healthy and who has a minor finding on echocardiogram. Does this minor finding require follow-up? If so, which ones do, and when should that follow-up be? The authors explain that in the asymptomatic neonate with minor echo findings, it is not clear which findings should warrant a follow-up in the literature. They reference a prior work in asymptomatic newborns suggesting that those with a murmur had about a 6% rate of having significant heart disease, in which follow-up was fairly obvious. But nearly one-half of these patients had findings on echo in which the need for a repeat echo or evaluation was not clear, and the authors mentioned the so-called appropriate use criteria that were published in 2014 for outpatient pediatric echoes, which have proven very useful, but explain that there are no such appropriate use criteria to guide echo use in the normal newborn nursery, and that is the rationale for this work. The investigators explain the methodology of this work and explain that this is a survey study in which they posed a series of questions to members of the AAP section on cardiology and cardiac surgery, as well as members of the PDHeartNet list server in March and April of 2020. The survey basically posed questions to the clinicians regarding their recommended follow-up of 10 non-emergent echo findings in three different clinical settings and these included three atrial-level defects, including a PFO, a 3-millimeter ASD, and a 6-millimeter ASD, two ventricular-level defects, including a small muscular VSD and a small perimembranous defect, two small PDAs with either left-to-right flow or bidirectional shunting, and finally three valvar conditions, which were trivial mitral regurgitation, trivial aortic regurgitation, and a normal functioning bicuspid aortic valve. The survey asked for the type of follow-up that would be recommended by the cardiologist for these 10 findings in three types of patients, and the three types of patients were an asymptomatic, non-syndromic term baby, a non-syndromic 34-week gestation baby, and a term baby with Down syndrome. 
all of whom had a heart murmur. In this survey, there was no information given regarding postnatal saturations or prenatal echocardiograms. Respondents to the survey were given five options for their recommendations after assessment of these lesions, which were normal newborn care, outpatient echo without cardiology evaluation, outpatient cardiology without echo, outpatient cardiology with echo, or inpatient cardiology consultation prior to newborn hospital discharge. And the respondents were asked when follow-up should be if it was in fact recommended. And on to the results. Overall, there were 177 respondents out of a total of 865 emails sent to AAP members and 1,777 emails to the PDHeartNet community members. And of course, it's challenging to know how much overlap there was between these two list servers. However, it's clear that the total number of respondents was a fairly low percentage of the total at 177 respondents out of these total number of emails sent and this clearly introduces some bias into the work. There are many, many data in this work, as you would imagine, given the total number of scenarios that I've explained that were questioned. Thus, for some of the granular data, I would suggest you read this important work yourself. However, I'll summarize what are probably some of the more important findings. First, there was pretty good unanimity amongst all respondents which were fairly evenly spread in terms of seniority, that the doctors surveyed would recommend follow-up of three of the 10 lesions that I previously described a few moments ago, with nearly 100% of the time recommending follow-up of ASDs of six millimeters, a small perimembranous VSD, or a PDA. Roughly 90% of respondents said that they would recommend follow-up of a three millimeter ASD, and about two-thirds of them recommended an echo in follow-up. Similarly, about 92 to 93% recommended follow-up of a small muscular VSD, but only about a third recommended an echo in follow-up, presumably because they felt the physical exam would be sufficient in most. In regards to PDAs, about 65 to 80% recommended a follow-up of a small PDA, and roughly half recommended an echo at that follow-up. Interestingly, more than one-half recommended follow-up of trivial AR, Trivial MR and the presence of a PFO were less commonly recommended for follow-up, with values of 15 to 20% range for those lesions. In regards to when these lesions were recommended for follow-up, there was tremendous variability amongst the respondents, with the only lesion that seemed to have some consistency amongst respondents being a small PDA that was bidirectional, in which most recommended early follow-up in about five to six weeks from initial evaluation. The greatest variability in timing for follow-up was in the 3mm ASD category, where recommendations varied from two weeks to three years. The authors then review for us the literature on the natural history for some of these neonatal findings so as to put into perspective the practices that we just reviewed. And once again, I would suggest that for those of you who are interested, that you take a look at this very nice summary of the natural history of PFO, ASD, VSD, and PDA in newborns identified who are asymptomatic with a murmur in the first day of life. Here are some of the bottom lines. First, for PFOs, most studies suggest that there's a PFO in about 60% of newborns, and it's present in roughly 20% of adults. For 3mm ASDs, there is a paper suggesting that in the newborn, an ASD less than or equal to 4 millimeters is seen in 1.6% of patients echoed on day of life 1 in this circumstance, 
but there is virtually 100% spontaneous closure or closure to a degree that is irrelevant. For ASDs that are over 4 millimeters, seen in about 1.6% of children on day of life 1, about 80% will resolve by a year of age. Small muscular VSDs are seen in 1.2 to 5.5% of children on day of life 1, and 89 to 100% of them close by one year, depending on the paper you read. Perimembranous VSDs are seen in 0.6% of infants on day of life 1, and approximately 87% would be expected to close spontaneously. Finally, PDAs are seen in 24 to 45% of infants on day of life 1, but remain clinically relevant in only 0.05% of children. In their discussion, the author stated, and I quote, This study suggests that pediatric cardiologists have a low threshold for repeat evaluation and echocardiography when non-emergent findings are seen on the echocardiography of asymptomatic infants. Respondents were likely to recommend some form of cardiology follow-up in several settings where the likelihood of clinical problems related to the echocardiographic findings were small. The authors then re-review the literature, suggesting that most of the lesions will resolve, and how the choices to recommend follow-up echoes did not seem to be related to what is actually known about the lesions, suggesting something of a disconnect between the choices made by pediatric cardiologists and what is known about these lesions in infants who are identified to have them on day of life one. They re-emphasize that these data are only for asymptomatic day of life one infants with a murmur, and the survey had no additional data other than the presence of a murmur, including no data on saturations, ECG, or blood pressure, or physical exam findings, which may have changed decisions of the respondents. The authors then speak to the nature of a survey in this work and the varied biases that can exist based on who chose to answer the survey, and also the possibility that because two different email systems were chosen to get the names of people to whom this survey was sent, it's possible that some may have replied more than once. The investigators then explain that with the growing use of echo and identification of minor issues, considerable resources may be utilized in follow-up, and at present clinicians do not have much formal guidance regarding appropriate recommendations on which non-emergent echo findings warrant additional evaluation. And so they concluded, this study suggests that many clinicians recommend follow-up that is unlikely to alter patient care. Follow-up assessments were frequently recommended even for findings that might best be considered normal, such as PFO or small PDA, or when spontaneous closure should be anticipated, like in a 3mm ASD or small muscular VSD. The clinical utility of these follow-up recommendations remains unclear, and clinicians have limited guidance to assist in their decision-making. Given the apparent discrepancy between the published natural history and the recommendations of this group of pediatric cardiologists, as well as the wide range of responses within these recommendations, a consensus guideline on the best management of non-emergent echocardiographic findings in term infants may be warranted. Well, as a general rule, I'd say that I personally am not a big fan of survey studies, and I feel that to some degree some of these have altered medical practice for the worse. However, I do believe that this survey study is of significant importance because it highlights what might well be a very serious problem whereby we are potentially recommending follow-up and evaluations of children who really don't seem, based on the natural history, to require any. As was done in 2014, I believe that the authors are likely correct that appropriate use guidelines are needed for this subset of patients. The costs of healthcare are high enough without unnecessary evaluations 
and I think that some effort to fix this situation by the creation of guidelines based upon some of the natural history information provided, as the authors suggest, would be a very good first step. At this point, I think we should move on to our discussion with the first author of this work, Dr. John Hokinson. Dr. John Hokinson earned his medical degree and completed his pediatric residency from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health in Madison, Wisconsin. He served as a pediatric registrar in Gloucestershire Royal Hospital in England and completed his pediatric cardiology fellowship at the University of Minnesota. And he has a particular interest in cardiac catheterization as well as the care of adults with congenital heart disease. It is a pleasure and honor to have him join us this week to speak about this work. Welcome, Dr. Hokinson. I'm here now with Dr. John Hokinson. Dr. Hokinson, thank you so much for joining us this week on the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, really enjoyed your work. Uh, congratulations on a very important and practical study. You know, would you care to share with the audience how you did, did you even come to think about doing this work? It seems like something that should have been obviously done in the past, but never was. Uh, how did you come to think of it? Well, before I get too far into um, the discussion, I, I would like to thank all of the cardiologists that participated in the survey. Obviously, we wouldn't have any information to talk about without them. I think my interest in this paper stirred from a couple of different populations and how I've noticed that we're using more and more echocardiography in a lot of newer settings. So um, I see a lot of patients in the clinic that are coming for a follow-up echocardiogram after an echocardiogram has been done in the newborn nursery. And it's very common for the patient's parents to feel very relieved once we've told them that their child really will be fine and their small muscular VSD really won't have a big impact on their life. And in a way that's rewarding, but I've become more and more worried that we didn't really need to warn the, worry those parents in the first place. Yeah. And rather than talking them off the ledge, a little bit later, maybe we shouldn't have led them out to that ledge in the first place. I see. Yeah. Well, uh, certainly your paper hammers home that concept for sure. Uh, you... um, I did have one other population that I've become increasingly concerned about. Um, and one of the tragic cases I came across was a young woman who saw me uh, for my opinion, whether she should have her three millimeter atrial septal defect closed surgically or closed in the cath lab. Uh-oh. And she'd been followed since infancy for this small atrial septal defect. And I think pretty understandably reached the conclusion that because she had to see a cardiologist every now and again, she had a heart problem. Mm. And it was very hard to unwind that situation. Hmm. Yeah. The train had left the station, I guess. <laughs> um, interesting. You know, your review of the natural history of these minor findings on echo in otherwise well newborns suggested that for a lot of lesions, there really seems to be really no rationale to proceed with any follow-up, such as PFO or an ASD that's less than or equal to three or four millimeters being just two examples. Why do you think it is that cardiologists still recommend follow-up when these lesions are identified in the newborn period? Well, I want to be careful because I'm not sure I know all the reasons, but I, I have a couple of thoughts. Um, as for myself, I 
didn't go into cardiology because I was fascinated by small muscular VSDs or small patent ductus arteriosus. I think like a lot of us, I was drawn by the more higher stakes cardiology where um, you'd never think twice about getting an echocardiogram. And that mindset may lead us to do more testing than we always need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be that because these echocardiograms are often done by primary care providers or ordered by them, the cardiology team may feel like, eh, we should probably discuss this with the family and bring them into clinic. Um, others may feel like it's their duty to clear this child of a heart problem uh, at some point. Um, and there may be pressures and factors in individual communities that I certainly haven't thought of and aren't aware of. I see. I see. You know, uh, when I was looking at your study, you looked at the different types of cardiologists, and it was interesting that there was a very nice uh, distribution between junior cardiologists, midterm, and late cardiologists. But uh, I was wondering if there were any factors amongst the cardiologists that were associated with a greater chance of recommending a follow-up of a benign lesion. It seemed from my reading that you were trying to suggest that they all the groups were similarly guilty of this, but I, I was wondering if there were any features that you uh, particularly asso- were associated with uh, needing more follow-up of these. Well, our hypothesis was that more senior cardiologists might be a little less likely to order a follow-up echocardiogram or see that child in clinic, or that those cardiologists that uh, self-reported as being more likely to do that would indeed uh, alter their responses. And I was a little surprised to find that it really didn't have a big impact on our statistics. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I thought so too, actually. Well, uh, now I'm going to ask you the $95 million question. Now that you've reviewed the natural history literature, which is such a nice part of your paper on some of these uh, minor findings and with your own experience, having been a cardiologist now for a while, I'm wondering if maybe you could summarize your thoughts on which of these lesions that you discuss in this work in your mind in an asymptomatic, otherwise well-newborn should not have cardiovascular follow-up. Or maybe it would be easier just to say who should. (laughs) Well, I I think there are a couple classes that are, I think, easy and straightforward in the groups we looked at. Uh, Certainly for bicuspid aortic valve, um, a perimembranous ventricular septal defect, and a large atrial septal defect, which we defined at six millimeters, I think most people would say that that child deserves follow-up. I think that's mm-hmm. pretty straightforward. Um, I think in babies who are asymptomatic, who have what looks like a true patent frame in a valley, and those with a small PDA, could be considered, based on some of the studies we referenced, to actually be within the realm of normal and probably do not require uh, any follow-up. With regard to the small atrial level defect, the 3-millimeter ASD, the small muscular VSD, I think the chance that child's going to have a medical problem because of that is quite small. And barring other concerns with the child, I think it would be perfectly reasonable to leave those uh, children in the care of their primary care provider. Yeah, yeah. That seemed to be a good uh, 
that seems seems very logical based on the natural history that you review in their work. Uh, well, uh, just to finish up our conversation, Dr. Hokinson, um, you speak a little bit in the paper about the so-called appropriate use criteria, which were developed in in 2014 for uh, outpatient cardiology um, and the use of echo. Are you aware of any uh, working group to develop similar criteria for this group of patients? I'm not. I have a secret hope that maybe the discussion of this paper on a format like yours Mm -hmm. might raise some questions because I think that type of uh, criteria might be very helpful to the, the general pediatric cardiologist who's having to make these decisions just to give them a little guidance um, and to support them if they think that this child uh, may or may not really require ongoing follow-up. Well, I, uh, I certainly agree, and I, I have to thank you and all of your co-investigators because I think, although I don't think either of us would view this as a high science type of a project, it is certainly a very important practical matter, and uh, I can tell you it's going to influence my practice having read uh, your very nice description of the natural history of some of these, what I now know to be very benign lesions. Most of them I thought were benign. Now I'm even more confident in my belief about it. I really want to thank you, Dr. Hokinson, for those in the audience. It's pretty late in the evening. Thank you so much for joining us this week to discuss this very important work. And again, congratulations to you and your co-investigators. Thank you very much, Dr. Pass. Pleasure. Well, I think you'll agree that Dr. Hokinson really clearly explained his thoughts on why he performed this study and also his hope that this work may lead to efforts to standardize the follow-up of infants with these sorts of problems. I'm most appreciative to him for his time this week and hope that you all enjoyed his commentary as much as I did. To conclude our 195th episode of the podcast, we end with a beautiful duet between Papageno and Pamina by Menin from Mozart's Die Zauberflotte. In this particular performance, we hear the wonderful New Zealand soprano Kirite Kanawa and the wonderful British baritone Thomas Allen. Thank you so much for joining me for this 195th episode, and thanks once again to Dr. Hokinson. I hope everybody has a wonderful week ahead. Im 
Come 